If you have your Bibles, you can take them at this time and turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah. Chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. And I will have to catch up to you guys. Hang on for just a second. <clears throat> Verse 5 is where we're at. We've dealt with this a little bit, but not wholly or thoroughly. So this is obviously, we know what this is. This is at the after the men of the ship, the mariners, had thrown Jonah overboard. This is Jonah's prayer during that time. He says in verse 5, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Jonah is finally recognizing the severity of his separation from God. It's interesting. Jonah, I'm just going to go off script for just a second. Jonah was born in a godly nation, quote, unquote. I'm going to put it in quotes because it had problems, but how many understand that? From a young man, he had grown up with the Bible, with the Word of God, not the Bible that we know, only part of that, but he had that. He was schooled in a church, per se, or in the synagogue or temple. He... He was raised a believer in God. He knew all of that. One thing he didn't know, he was a prophet, and we know that he prophesied that Israel would grow and grow and grow. And what are are all Israelites, let alone Jonah, what are they all waiting for? The kingdom of God. Where God will come down and be their king. That's what he was expecting. And so, everything that he had done that we are aware of and we are told about, it was all submerged in theology or God thinking. Does that make sense? Everything he did. I think it's one thing that he maybe did not do. He didn't realize the problems that happen when you don't know God. I don't think he realized the problems and the issues that are, that are besetting you, the, the judgment of God. He never experienced that as far as we know until now. God will judge, by the way. Amen. And for Jonah, his life, this, this aspect of his life, this being thrown into the sea to die, being thrown and being in Sheol, being in, in, in the darkest, deepest death, if you will. This is all new to him. In essence, he was a little church boy, and now this. Why do you think God was trying to show him what judgment is all about? Maybe, maybe, God's trying to work in his life to show him, listen, This is what's happening, going to happen to 
all these Ninevites. Look at this. You don't want to be here. You need to tell them to repent. And eventually he does. But the reality is, there is no question God is teaching Jonah what judgment's all about. And frankly, he don't like it. Amen? He does not like it at all. And in this text, Jonah is finally recognizing the severity of his separation from God. Jonah's prayer in this dark imagery of Sheol as the prophet comes to grips with the true severity of his separation. It seems as though John, or Jonah is experiencing death through drowning. You can almost, how many of you hate water? Nobody? And Mr. Pierce loves water. Uh, let's see, the name of the fort, Camp, Camp Ripley. How many have ever heard or been to Camp Ripley? So when I was in college, I had a youth group in Ossipee, Minnesota. There were probably 20 to 30 kids <coughs> in that little town. Yeah, that was pretty weird. But they came from everywhere. But we went, we went down the St. Croix River and ran into the Mississippi at Camp Ripley, and then that's where we were going to get out. So we told the kids, if you can't swim, you have to wear your life jacket. How many kids obey that? You know, it's all about, especially the crow wing, it's all, at that point, it was all shallow, and you could run around, and it, would be, it was fun, splashing, tipping canoes, but the Mississippi's coming. And I'll never forget where they met, all of a sudden, it was shallow, and all of a sudden, it, was, it got down to real narrow and very deep. And this one kid had been goofing off, messing around, and now he's screaming for help because he's drowning. And I'm about 50 yards away. How scary can that be? I did everything I can. I ran as fast as I could. I got to him. And not only then, when I got to him, I was out of breath. He was drowning, but he wasn't the only one. I have never tried to save a kid from anybody from drowning. And here he is holding on to me for dear life. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. And I, I couldn't do anything anymore. And finally... The Lord, all the Lord, I, I hit bottom, and I pushed him up and out, and he was able to get to land, and then I was able to get out. But those moments of utter turmoil and nothing you can do, and you're, that's the Mississippi at Camp Ripley, that's 10, 12 feet deep, that's nothing compared to the Mediterranean Sea. He is in utter darkness. He can't see anything. He knows that he's falling. You see pictures if you Google Jonah, you see him falling with bubbles coming up. He's just falling backwards down deep in the sea. That, that No one was there with a Polaroid, so we don't know. But we do know this. 
this man was drowning and he's telling of that issue. The water encompassed me to the point of death. I was going down and down the deep gulf. And we'll talk about this. We'll show you what, what, what uh, um, Jewish people believe it looks like. And, and you'll see pictures. And, and then you'll go, oh, now I know what he's talking about. But the great gulf, the great deep or the great pit engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And by the way, this is really weird, but just to get there, that's actually, that term actually translates reeds, which you would find where? Along the shore of a river, reeds, river and reeds go, uh, go hand in hand. We'll talk about that shortly here. But Jonah is finally recognizing that he's in trouble. He's finally understanding that, hey, this separation from God that you, you did, you're the one that walked away. This separation from God is not pleasant. And this might be it. The waters enclosed me, threatening my life. The deep had enveloped me. Reeds had wrapped around my head. This word waters, deep, and reeds. All of these have the idea, like they talked about before, the heart of the sea, the river. And it's, in, it's very particular important that we understand the river and the reeds went hand in hand. Reeds are river plants that are not normally associated with the sea. Especially out in the middle of the sea, what in the world? Where do you see reeds? If you do see them along a lake shore here in Minnesota, you see them along the shore where it's very shallow. That's not the case here. This is totally different. To be honest with you, the heart of the sea and the river, which we've discussed before, all have associations with the netherworld in Hebrew thought. The reason for these associations has to do with the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the universe. From a Semitic point of view, the world is surrounded by water, a cosmic sea kept at bay by a solid dome that Yahweh or God had placed around the earth in order to make it hab habitable for humans and for land animals. The sea is often envisioned as split into two bodies of water by the dome or the expanse, and it is referred to as the waters above and the waters below. Where have you heard that? You remember that in Genesis. So this is where people have an idea what it looked like because that's all they had the information of at that point. He goes on farther in the verse. said, I descended to the roots of the mountain. Again, here we have roots of the mountain. That's very important. Some of you might have pillars in your translations. The earth with, with its bars was around me forever. Jonah's in deep water. Literally and figuratively. He's in trouble. He is that he is dying. God's purpose is sending Jonah into the heart of the sea to the threshold of Sheol was to revive his appreciation for what? Well, first of all, Jonah, this is what judgment looks like. 
We already talked about that. But also, he's going to show Jonah, this is what mercy looks like. You understand that? Jonah is going to experience both the judgment of drowning, which is one of the worst ways you could ever die. How many understand that? It's horrendous. This is where he's at. And yet, can you imagine having the people you call their enemies in some fashion pick you up and throw you into the sea? That couldn't have been very pleasant either. And then as you're drowning, feel like you're going to Sheol, to the abyss, to the pit. And as you know and I know that this sea serpent, this creature, swallows him. I can't think of a worse judgment. Especially, and by the way, I, I don't like swimming as much as I used to. As a youth pastor, I loved it until that moment, and then I kind of like, eh, let's stay by the shore. I never want to be responsible for bringing home a non-breathing child. Can't imagine that. Jonah described the experience of being caught in the undertow of the stormy sea in terms of undergoing a river ordeal. You see, in Jewish thought, in, in Mesopotamia thought, a, a river flowed through the bottom of the sea and served as the threshold to the underworld. So, in essence, you have the ocean, and then you have the river underneath, and that river takes you to Sheol. How many understanding Jewish thought a little bit like that? Hopefully that's helpful. I'll show you a picture shortly. Well, I might as well do that now. So in their thought, as best as we can, you have the earth, the mountains, the, the pillars of the earth. You see those down in the ocean. Matter of fact, when, we, when you start dealing with this stuff, flat earthers come to mind. They had no idea. Okay? They, they didn't understand. So this is how they viewed it. You can see Sheol. I'll try to get a pointer laser on here. Oh, very good. So you have the earth. Sheol's within the earth. These are the oceans here, but then in, in, in here is a river that takes you to the pillars of the earth to Sheol. This is their thinking. This is how they think that they're going to die and what after death is. Now, by the way, many of us say, well, that's dumb. Well, so is your idea about how you're going to die and what happens. We don't know. All we know is as a Christian to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. David said, I'm going to go to death with you. What does that look like? The only thing we have a picture of looking like is the rich man and Lazarus. And we don't even there have a picture of what it looks like except that they could talk to one another. And then in, in, in the end of that, I believe, I believe there is no more holding place because Jesus Christ led captivity captive. They took them all away. They're all with him. Regardless of the point, this is the understanding that they have, and it's, it's important that we understand that. No wonder he's talking about, and this was very interesting, no wonder he's talking about mountains, pillars. No wonder he's talking about the abyss. He's talking about Sheol. 
He's talking about <clears throat> um, going to Sheol with the rivers. But what's interesting too is the foundations of the earth, which are the pillars of the earth. They believe it. Earth sits on a pillar on pillars, and those that river takes you in into the pillars and then into Sheol. There's also look what there's there. <laughs> A sea creature. This was their mindset. This is what they thought. And it's, it's the first time I saw these pictures and understand these pictures. So I'm no uh, uh, expertise on these. But it does give us understanding of what's going on in Jonah's mind. Does it not? Does Jonah think he's dying? Absolutely, 100%, Yes. He absolutely does, and he believes that he's being separated from God, and he believes he's going to Sheol, and he believes this is, this, I, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm totally separated with God from God. Now let me ask you, have any of us felt separated from God? Folks, and by, by the way, do we feel separated to God because this is, a, don't answer this question, just answer it in your head. Because Jonah's going to answer it literally here soon. But isn't it true that that separation from God isn't God? It's us. True? That separation from God is us. When we feel alone, it's because we've been away from Him. And Jonah, it's the same thing, except Jonah's going to come up with this legalistic, pious attitude that is beyond the pale, and to be honest with you, all of us have had it. And we'll see that later on. So, uh, the trial by river ordeal that Jonah is going through was a phenomenon in the ancient Near Eastern in which the accused was plunged in the river and his fate was determined by whether or not he could withstand the rushing waters. And Jonah now, being under the sea, in this river, quote unquote, he is now without hope. He can't sleep this one off. He can't run away to Joppa. He cannot get on a ship. He cannot flee on a ship. He cannot sleep over the storm he is totally undone. He's at the very bottom, both literally and figuratively. This is it. It's, that's why I truly believe the reeds are involved in here. Their presence makes sense when you understand their understanding of the afterlife or what they would call the netherworld. This descent winds up at the same place in this river that takes them to Sheol. The text then says that he was enclosed, he was enveloped, and he was wrapped. Should we go back there? Look at this. The water encompassed me. The great deep 
engulfed me. The reeds wrapped around my head. Is Jonah been very figurative and very poetic with his words? Yes or no? Throughout the whole thing. Is it possible that his grave clothes are being wrapped around him in his mind? The water has now encompassed me, mummied me. The great deep has engulfed me. I can't even see. And the weeds are being wrapped around my head. Many, some commentators believe that's exactly what this is talking about. His grave clothes are being given to him as he will soon find his way to Sheol and absolutely apart from God in his mind. One author says, taken together, these verbs give the impression that Jonah is being wrapped in grave clothes and buried in a tomb. Jonah had wanted death. We see that in verse 3. He's going to want it again later on. But Jonah had wanted death, and so God gave him a near-death experience to wake him up, literally. As the prayer has already revealed, however, upon experiencing this descent to Sheol, Jonah quickly sought for God's mercy. Finally. And in reality, it's, you, you have to understand that Jonah has been preaching the greatness of the kingdom of God on this earth in Israel. And, and the vastness, and, and it was growing and growing and growing. It had grown so big during his time that he had prophesied the growing, and it had grown so big, it was all lush, and everything was great, and everything was wonderful, except there was a ton of sin. To be honest with you, the day that Jonah was prophesying is just like the day of America today. Its influence is vast. Its power is great. There's marauding <clears throat> soldiers trying to penetrate, and they make marauder get a band of people, but they can't conquer a city. But they're, they're doing that because Israel is so great. And here it is. Jonah for the first, maybe, from we understand, the first time in his life, he's, he's recognizing what judgment looks like. After he was told to go and tell Nineveh to repent, I don't want them to repent. Why didn't he want them to repent? I don't know. But he didn't want them to repent. I have ideas, but I don't know. Reality is, God said if they don't repent, I am going to judge them. Jonah, you don't want to, you want to see them repent? Well, listen, I'll show you what judgment looks like. And now Jonah is being judged, and he's like, I don't like this. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Scripture talks about all these descents during his judgment in many other places. The mountains, the land, the, the base of the mountains, the pillars. The Bible says in 1 Samuel, Job, and Psalm, many passages, 
talks about who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. I'm going to understand that picture then, right? The pillars tremble. That's found in Job, I believe. In 1 Samuel, it's he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Then the last one in the book of Psalm, the earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who will firmly set its pillars in Selah. So this is nothing new to Jonah. He is Mr. Religious, 100%. He knows these, he knows these the texts. He's spitting them back. He's like, oh, I'm actually seeing the pillars. I'm actually feeling the war. I'm actually being wrapped up. I'm dying. How many got the picture of what's going on? I will not be labored anymore. Most significant for Jonah's prayer is the fact that these mountains, the threshold of Sheol, and their bases are tantamount to the doorway to the grave. Most significant for Jonah is he's dying. He's being separated from God. And it's the exact opposite of what's going on. You see, Jonah's descent to the very bottom of the subterranean mountains brings the poem to its lowest point. And in a way, this location is the farthest away because all he knows, he doesn't know of Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount um, El Capitan in Colorado. He doesn't know about those things. All he knows about is the Temple Mount. And we always go up to the Temple Mount. And now, instead of being high up in the air, he's as low as he can be with the lowest mountains in Sheol. Do you see that? In Israel, the sacred mountain is represented by Zion. Thus, the mountains to which Jonah descended are the inverse, the negative of the sacred mountain where Jonah previously stood in God's presence. Totally opposite. In essence, I will share with you what Youngblood said. He does a great job. Instead of a psalm of ascent sung by pilgrims as they would climb the mount of God to the temple, Jonah sings the psalm of descent in anticipation of death and separation from God. The end is near. At least, that's where he's at. Jonah, as one author put it, is at an anti-pilgrimage, an anti-temple. And that doesn't sit well with his upbringing. It's interesting what Jonah's response is to this. We, will, we can go into a lot of details, but I, I want to get to the response because it's so vitally important. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But, but, this brings me to a passage of Scripture. I love this verse. I love this word. And that's Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. 
you have your Bibles, you can turn them, if you will, with me. Because this is exactly what, to me, this equates or brings to remembrance, I should say. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit of this now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too are formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, those first three verses tell us how wicked and nasty and horrible we were before God. We were in a whole lot of trouble. Sheol would have been our place, but it would have been the bad side. Jonah is in this similar situation. I'm not saying he wasn't a child of God. I'm just saying he was in a horrible place as if he was unsaved. And then look at verse 4 there, but God being rich in mercy because of His grace, love, His great love, which He loved us. And even when we were in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Look what Jonah says. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. How many would say, Amen, Amen, God brought us out of the pit of hell. Amen? Praise God. This same situation is with Jonah. He's like, I'm. by the way, Jonah is a goody two-shoes. I really believe that. <laughs> Religiously. And now he's separating himself from God, and now he's in trouble. So where does he go? He goes right to God. And guess what? God answers. Remember the song, Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough to keep me away from you. Nothing can keep you away from the mercies of God except hell. That is complete separation from God. And this is where he's at. You brought up my life from the pit, O God. Just as Noah's descent was abruptly interrupted as he reached the threshold of the grave, so the distinction of the poem abruptly changes. He says the pit... The Hebrew word pit derives from the meaning ruin, destruction, annihilation. And thus the idea is it's the corpse's decomposition, the final return to death. I'm heading there. By using this term, Jonah shows how certain he was that death was imminent. Nonetheless, at the last minute, God reached down and retrieved Jonah from the abyss, just like he did in our salvation. Amen. The pit, in fact, and Sheol often occur together in parallel word pair, like Psalm 16:10. For you would never abandon me to Sheol nor allow your devotee to see the pit, David says. 
Jonah 7 echoes Psalm 103. I think I've got that right here. Psalm 31. This is very interesting. One of God's signature demonstrations of grace immortalized in Israel's place. Bless, O my soul, God, who redeems me from the pit of your life. Jonah was grateful. You've brought my life from the pit, O Lord. When did he say this? Where was he praying? <laughs> okay, so you got to understand this. Jonah's in the fish or the creature. And he says, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is great. <laughs> think about that. Think about, I mean, I, I can think of better places that are great, right? But here's Jonah. This is great. He brought me life from the pit. When I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols, the text says, as he answers this question, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Jonah now has an eye problem. What does that mean, Jonah has an eye problem? It's all about him. Here he is, separated himself from God. Here he is going to the bottom of the depths, dying, possibly dead, then brought to life or got saved by the fish in life. Whatever that is, it doesn't matter. That's what's happening. Now he thinks it's awesome to be inside this fish and that God saved him and immediately his arrogance, his piousness, and his selfishness come to absolute clarity. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. In essence, this is what he is doing. While I was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you. He, he, notice there is no confession or repentance at all. God's judging him, and what is he? I go to church. I pray. I ain't that bad as those wicked people. Do you see that? It's exactly what he does. I'm Mr. Religious. Look at me. While I was fainting, I remember the Lord. It was all me. It's focused on him. I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. I'm this great Christian. Everybody comes to me for help because I'm such a great Christian. We have a problem. I had remembered God's mercy just in time. 
I mean, that's his attitude. It is at this point that the reader first begins to suspect that Jonah's response to God's gracious deliverance is not all that it should be. <laughs> Amen? Jonah's emphasis on his remembrance of God is the first clue that his focus is still misplaced. So what is it telling us? God, I had remembered. In the context of Jonah's prayer, they're problematic. First, the poem's abundant use of aquatic imagery and its numerous references to engulfing waters and drowning recall the flood narrative of Genesis. How many say, yeah, okay, we're in the ocean, got it, water, ship, thrown overboard. Well, not so much except for a dove, or in our terms, a pigeon. Regardless, Jonah functions as a Noah figure. What was Noah's speech, or in Genesis 8, what do we find about Noah? I mean, is he engulfed in a sea? He's not engulfed as Jonah is, but he's engulfed in all there is is water on this earth. All alone, except these stinky animals and family. Woohoo! Think there were fights at that place? <laughs> I need to get away. Go talk to the hippopotamuses, they'll talk to you. Regardless, what did Noah say? In Genesis 8.1, Noah did not say, I remembered God, as some arrogant speech. He said, God remembered me. God remembered me. Jonah's statement seems ironic because it is an inversion of the flood narrative and its key phrase, God remembers me. Jonah's emphasis is misplaced. He remembered God, but doesn't mention that God remembered him. I mean, that's a very, very bad place to be. It's almost as if Jonah is saying, I am smarter and wiser than God. And it's all about me. In the context of prayer, the faith of the other, re the other problem with this statement is, in the context of the prayer, the faithful nearly always confess that God remembered them rather than vice versa. In Psalm 119, in the night, the Lord, I remembered your name that I may keep your law. Psalm 119, this statement, however, occurs in the context of a Torah, expressing praise for how God's words keep the psalmist innocent in the midst of a compromised culture. Not in the midst of Thanksgiving song for undeserved salvation. So David uses it also, but he uses it in a very different way. Jonah's way is not a very good way. It's very prideful. Matter of fact, this is seen in two, I'm going to give you two different um, verses side by side so you can see the difference. In one, 
Jonah 2.9, devotees are useless idols forsaking the experience of mercy. But as for me, with a grateful voice, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. They would say it, I despise those who adhere to idols, useless idols. But as for me, I trust God. I will rejoice ecstatically over your mercy because you, are, you noticed my affliction. You understood my personal distress. You tell me which one is innocent, humble, and realizing God is great, and the other one is a putz. Would you agree with that? There's no question. One is, hey, I'm Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. I found God again. You're the one that left him, buddy. God never left you. Amen. And the other one is, I humbly stand before the great and mighty God. What an unbelievable truth that this is. And by the way, Jonah's expressed relief that his prayer reached God's ears from such a great distance. In fact, Jonah's prayer traveled the span from Sheol to God's temple, because that's where God is, right? Well, in Thes' mind it was. Jonah's statement, however, is ambiguous with respect to whether the effectiveness of his prayer is due to Yahweh's mercy or his own correct piety. There's no question this is about Jonah's piety. First, Jonah's prayer is void. Other problems with this prayer. It's void of any acknowledgement of wrongdoing on his part. In other words, he never says, I'm sorry. He's got the Fonzie problem. Right? He never says I was wrong. Never. It's, uh, it's this arrogant pride that this man has. It is completely lacking of confession or repentance. His prayer acknowledges only that he was in danger. It never delves into the real reason for the circumstance which he was in. And why was he in danger? Why was he in danger? He ran away from God. He went the exact he disobeyed God. That's why he was in danger. Secondly, the freaking out over the death and crying like a baby betrayed Jonah's emphasis on his piety. <laughs> you get it? Oh no, I'm dying now. Oh, help me, help me, God. I didn't want you then, but I want you now. How many of us do that? So he's, he's freaking out. He's, he's getting enveloped in the ocean and in the rivers and the pillars, the shields at the door. And then this serpent comes, this, this creature comes, swallows him whole, and he's crying like a baby. Where was your faith then, Jonah? Would be a fair question, would it not? Well, let's just think about what Jonah feels. I've been running away from God. I've been disobeying Him and what He wants. Yeah, I'm done for. 
I'm done for. Jonah concludes the phrase with your holy temple back here. Uh, actually, you have to look in the text. I don't have it all here. You're into your holy temple. He says, okay, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. You can almost see this guy as arrogant as can say this. Into your holy temple, O Lord. And then out of the middle of nowhere, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Who is he talking about? Did he just throw somebody else under the bus to God? Yes or no? Yes. He isn't going to throw himself on the bus because he never says sorry. He never recognizes his faults. It's always everybody else. And now he says, look at those guys. At least those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the guys on the boat. Why is he talking about those guys? They didn't stay true to their God. Oh, but I did. You, what? <laughs> I mean, Jonah, you're making an argument that pagan didn't remain pagan. Think about that. That's insane. These pagans didn't remain pagan. They actually jumped on your board and they're not going to stay with you. Uh, did you, Jonah? Just listen. This, this verse drips with the utmost prideful arrogance I've ever seen. How many can see that? It's just over and over and over. This arrogance. The prayer successfully reaches his destination. John's, Jonah's strong temple orientation displayed in the very structure of his prayer indicates a almost cultic emphasis and doesn't have anything to do with repentance or sorrow or forgiveness asking for it. He then goes on. What does he say? He says, Jonah's confidence in his piety because he goes on, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of a thanksgiving. You're in a fish! What? <sighs> oh, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. Uh, I tell you what, it, it's so... Jonah was a dork like all of us are at times. But he intensifies the dorkness after the mercy of God is revealed to him. I mean, he's never seen judgment. Here he is now in judgment. So now he knows that. I don't want anything to do with that. So God gives him mercy. And now he's experiencing mercy, just like God wants Nineveh to recognize and realize mercy. And what does he do? I, I will tell you this. Jonah's song is the country western song about 20 years ago. It's all about me, 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 me. That's exactly where he's at. He's almost at death and he's still there. He must have been real German, right? Thick-headed, no way. It's all about me. Regardless, is unbelievable. Jonah had confidence in his own piety. In other words, yeah, I know you did that for me. 
I go to church. Yeah, I know you did that for me because I'm going to sacrifice. And I'm the prophet. I'm the one that prophesied that Israel would be the greatest nation and fill it. And it did. So there you go. Here I am. <laughs> How many think that's horrible sin? We at times are the same way. We think greater of ourselves than we ought to. Do we not? So, even though I've been throwing stones at Jonah, I just want you to see his attitude, see who he is by his own words, but recognize we're the same way. Because let's, let's just be honest. Why don't you do that? Well, my church says I can't. Why do you go to church? Because I don't know. Because I'm a Christian. By the way, is that a good answer? there better answers? Oh, but I'm not like them. Oh, no. I am not like them. Isn't that exactly what Jonah just did? He put himself up on a pedestal and threw somebody else out of, under the bus. There's no question that's what he just did. So what? Well, <clears throat> you go back to this because we go talked about this quite a bit. This is good. In these both passages, you can see a man after God's own heart and a man that God actually creates a fish for. And the difference in who they are. Both passages mention God's mercy. Both um, both, they say, this is my God. But the attitude from both of them is totally different. Totally different. The reality is, though, look what he says. Devotees of useless idols forsake their experience of mercy. I despise those who adhere to useless idols. Let me ask you, do you think Jonah was thinking about that passage? Very well could have been. Then look what he says. But as for me. And look what the text says in Psalm. But as for me. And instead of, <laughs> instead of David, but as for me, I will trust in you, God, alone. I mean, it's all about God alone. It's always trusting in him, not himself. And here's what Jonah says with that. With a grateful voice. <laughs> My goodness. I will sacrifice to you. You didn't want to sacrifice by going down to Joppa. You didn't sacrifice by getting on a ship. You didn't sacrifice by not praying to me once, as, we, if we, as far as we know, in all the turmoils. Not once. But I tell you who did. The men on the boat. They did. What I have vowed, I will pay. I will rejoice ecstatically over your mercy. 
does Jonah have a complex of I can do all this. It's, it's up to me. It's me. Whereas David says, I will rejoice ecstatically over your mercy. What motivates his rejoicing? God's mercy. You have noticed my affliction. You care. You love. And therefore, I'm submissive to you. You understand my personal. You are God. David is putting God high because that's where he is. Jonah is putting God as a trinket almost. In that, it's all up to me. It's all up to me. Jonah is now experiencing mercy. Jonah promises to remember God's saving mercy and to commemorate it by sacrifice and vows. So, what's God going to do? Jonah insists that his own experience of divine mercy will result I will get one more time there here we go will result in orthodox and lasting piety particularly in the sacrifices and the vows the reader again encounters a great irony in Jonah's prayer again since he was thrown overboard before the mariners sacrificed and vowed to God, Jonah was unaware that the mariners had already done everything that he had promised to do. You see, it was the heathen that sacrificed and prayed, but not Jonah. Not Jonah. Compounding this irony is the fact that while Jonah's promises to offer sacrifice and pay what he has vowed, he makes no no mention of submitting himself to the divine commission he was given. Now, we do know that God recommissions him and Jonah does, in fact, go to Nineveh. The absence, though, of confession of wrongdoing or commitment to repentance demonstrates Jonah's misplaced emphasis. His act of piety, his acts of piety are not irrelevant, but they are misplaced. Does that make sense? They, however, are not enough in and of themselves to ensure change of disposition that Jonah needs. A fact underscored later by, Jonah, or by God's confrontation with Jonah in chapter 4. The confession and repentance are not foremost in Jonah's mind when he prays. That suggests that the prophet stands in need of, he believes he doesn't need more education. He's good enough. He doesn't need to learn anything. 
the sacrifices, vows, and even the pilgrimage to Nineveh will all be meaningless without Jonah's progress towards conformity to God's merciful character. And isn't that the story? Isn't that the whole issue? I don't, matter of fact, it is better to than sacrifice. Tell me, it is better to than sacrifice. Did Jonah not get that memo? Obviously not. He would do the, the, the things that Christians do, but no, no, if that's going to be outside my comfort zone, no way. I'm not going to do it. Whatever reason he had, I'm not going to do that. And Jonah still doesn't get it. He got thrown overboard. He got eaten by it. He thinks he's in shell. Hasn't he been enough? Don't you think he should love learn by now? But his arrogance is so strong. Like, like the Skywalker's father and son, the arrogance is strong in you, Jonah. Right? There's no humility here. None. Zero. It's the exact opposite. Let me ask you, does God use him despite his worthlessness? Absolutely. That means God can still use me. It doesn't matter what we have done, the sins that we are in. What matters is, do we humbly obey God? Do we love Him? God will use the worst of sinners to get great things done for Himself. Amen. In other words, don't give up. God's not finished yet. Amen? He will use you. But secondly, we can look at Joan and say, what a putz. True? I mean, listen, when he wasn't given his words and everything, that's one thing we didn't know. Now? Oh, he's telling you what he thinks. He's writing it down. And you can see the arrogance dripping off of him. Don't you get it, Jonah? Here's the question. Do we get it? Do we get it? Too many times we feel superior to other people. Do we not? Yes or no? Absolutely. As husbands and wives, do we ever feel superior? No one wants to shake their heads yes or no. <laughs> because if I say yes, that's embarrassing to me. If I say no, my wife's going to nudge me. Right? Is that not right? <laughs> oh, man. Despite the shortcomings of Jonah, God used him to, have, to see the greatest repentance the world has ever known. The greatest repentance the world's ever known. Salvation is from the Lord. He does say that. Is that true? Absolutely true. Salvation is from the Lord. 
If I were to ask you, we're not going to, I will, but don't, I want to hear public answers, but what would you tell Jonah reading this? Would you tell him, Jonah, you need to repent? Yes or no? Jonah, you need to confess. Jonah, you need to get on your knees and humbly confess and repent to the Lord what you have done against Him. That just gave you mercy. How many say amen, amen, and amen? Amen? What's the difference between Jonah and us? If the first word that comes to your mind, well, I'm not like Jonah, you are just like Jonah because you just said that. How many get that? See, we all confess, repent, draw closer to God. God doesn't want us to be stagnant in His servants. He wants us to be on fire going forward. And what's that going to take? It's going to take humility, recognizing He is God. Amen. He is omnipotent God. I submit to His Lordship. How many of you know what lordship means? Have you put in everything under God's lordship, His control? I'm talking to believers here, amen? There's this idea that lordship is a bad word. Listen, lordship is the very word that every believer, including myself, needs to hear daily. As many of the writers wrote in my dissertation, every square inch needs to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. Is it or not? It's easy to look at Jonah and say, what a dork. It's very easy to say that. Reality is, Jonah is just, and I'm going to say it over and over because I've said it many times, he's just like us. We can't, we aren't fixing anything by saying he's a dork and walking away. We're looking at it and saying, okay, what do I need to work on? What does God need to change in me? Amen? All right. We are going to close now. How many got a view of Jonah? He has revealed his problems. Pride and arrogance always go before a fall. And for Jonah, it was a big fall. But God in His mercy pulled him up. Amen? Amen. Mr. Gaiman, can you close it? come and close the word of prayer? After we close our service today, we'll be staying together for our potluck meal, the end of the month meal, and we'll be staying here at the church for that. Please stand and let me close our time together in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account of Jonah. I pray that we would not dismiss it just looking at Jonah's problems and his fleeing from you, but we would make the application here and make sure that we learn from Jonah 
and that we are a humble people, a people who realizes our dependence on you, and we are quick to confess and repent when we see ourselves straying from you. Thank you, Father, for the time this morning of opening your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 